Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Over the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monaco 24. This week, we discuss peace talks in South Africa trying to end the two-year-old war in Tigray. I think if they're smart, what they want is to calm things down across the whole country and build a new policy, a new way of working across the country, which gets a better balance between central control and local devolution. Plus, the top songs in Latin America. It's in the style of old-style sort of tangueros, tango music, that was very popular in the 1950s that dealt with a lot of social issues and poverty, and they're sort of resurrecting that through their songs. All that and much more on The Curator with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show with a conversation of UN's former humanitarian chief, Sir Mark Lowcock, whether peace talks in South Africa can bring an end to the two-year war in Tigray. Well, this war has been going on with pauses now since late 2020. Right now, as you and I talk, it's, I think, the bloodiest, most deadly conflict anywhere on the planet, even including Ukraine, the loss of life in a total bloodbath over recent weeks when the Eritrean government have thrown waves of young men at the Tigrayan defenses. The Ethiopian government have tried to do the same. The loss of life on both sides has been absolutely horrific. So it is a good thing that there are at least some attempts to bring this horrific, intolerable carnage to an end through the peace talks in South Africa. What exactly is driving this violence? Well, the origin goes back a long way. The Eritrean authorities under the dictat of actually one of the world's most brutal long-standing dictators, Isaiah Safawerki, have long held grudges against uh, Ethiopia and especially against the Tigrayan population of Ethiopia. When Prime Minister Mela Sanawi, who was from Tigray, was um, in charge of Ethiopia going back uh, to start with nearly 30 years ago, there was a a period when there was an active war between Eritrea and um, Ethiopia on the Tigray border. And that was basically because they'd fallen out. And the grudges created by that war, which was about 20 years ago, brought to an end, have never gone away. And so that's one big element in the jigsaw puzzle. Another is that when Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed took office, he tried to exert a lot of control over the region of Tigray. Ethiopia is a federal country. So regions are supposed to have autonomy. And discussions between the two sides got out of control and fear grew and both sides took up arms. So that was what was happening during the course of 2019. And, and Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed made the terrible blunder of resorting to force to try to have his way and engaging uh, the Eritreans on his side. And um, things have spiraled totally out of control from that point. Absolutely. And the UN Secretary General, Antony Guterres, for example, has said that violence there has reached alarming levels. How important do you think that these talks are taking place now? I think it's very important. And credit is due to the African Union under their leader, the chair of the African Union, uh, Mr. Faki. Um, the Secretary General of the UN has been pushing for this as well. The Americans have been pushing the sides to get together. I think they've helped get the Tigrayan side to the talks. The talks have one big problem, which is the biggest 
kind of um, voice creating most of the trouble who are the Eritreans under Isaiah Safawerki are not, to my understanding, actually in the room. So it's good that the Ethiopian government is talking to the Tigrayan side, but it is a problem that that evil malevolent force from the outside who are causing a lot of the problems, the Eritreans, um, are not being forced to the table as well. And something needs to be done to bring more pressure to bear on them. What do you think that kind of pressure could be? Where could it come from? Well, it's very difficult to see, um, actually. Um, They're not particularly susceptible to Western pressure. They are reliant on a number of other countries, some in the Middle East. Uh, They buy arms, for example, from Turkey and elsewhere. They have longstanding relations with, for example, Russia and China. So there are countries um, who ought to be able to bring a degree of pressure to bear. And I think that given most of those countries also have a a stake in Ethiopia, China in particular is a huge lender to Ethiopia, and Ethiopia's ability to service its debts to China will be called into question if this situation continues as it's been going long into the future. So those countries ought to ask themselves what their wider interest is in bringing this uh, to a more peaceful situation, because there's a serious danger that what's going on now in Tigray could be a step on the way to the total fragmentation of Ethiopia, which would be hugely damaging, not just for Ethiopia, but for the region and for the wider world too. And that's really not in the interest of countries like China. So they have an interest in putting their shoulder to the wheel a bit more to help with this problem. What do you think different sides want in these talks, for example, and more widely? What does Tigray's People's Liberation Front want, for example? And even Eritrea, what does that nation want? I think what the Tigrayans want is not to be subject to a huge, what they, in their terms, they believe they're being subject to a huge attempted genocide. And they, for them, this is a, a, an existential struggle. They genuinely believe, and, you know, I understand why they believe this, that there's an attempt going on to exterminate them. So, so that's where they're coming from. They want to be able to live in peace and safety, and they want access to humanitarian aid, which has been blocked effectively for months now. They want health services. They want what people want everywhere around the world, actually. I think the on the Eritrean side, it's an ability to deal, you know, to get what they've wanted and um, through a long-standing grudge. They have always worried that maybe because of things they've done in the past, the um, the Tigrayans at some point could rise again and then be a threat to Eritrea. So I, I'm afraid that they they want to um, do everything they can to essentially destroy the Tigrayans' ability ever to pose a threat to them in future. The Ethiopian government, I think, um, originally wanted to have more control from the centre on the outlying regions. I think that their view has evolved a bit and they recognise that they're living in a federal system. Ethiopia is one country, but comprised of many, many nations, huge numbers of different ethnic groups. There are many other conflicts around the country. I think if they're smart, what they want is to um, calm things down across the whole country and build a new policy, a new way of working across the country, which gets a better balance between central control and local devolution. And now a highlight from the Monaco Daily this week, where our guests, Joan Everett and Isabel Hilton, tell us if they ever assumed a different identity, all connected with the story of the Russian spy pretending to be Brazilian in Norway. 
never having contemplated putting myself in this position. Um, I suppose Brazil, uh, a faraway country which is no threat to Norway, um, plausible. Would would every Norwegian be able to recognise a Brazilian accent absolutely with um, certainty? Is this a set of documents and and a backstory that can plausibly be confected? Because See, after I, all, I, you can't just turn up at a university and claim a job. You need a backstory. Maybe in Brazil, maybe Brazilian documents are easier to fake. I, I like to think he got caught, John, because he was massively overdoing it, like turning up to work every day in a floral shirt and drinking fruity cocktails through a twirly straw and, and, and doing the samba during working hours. Yes, what a wonderful vision. I love it. Um, I, but the, the, the witness statement suggests that, in fact, he was a perfectly normal researcher, friendly, easy to get on with, didn't do somewhere in the workplace, tragically. <laughs> uh, so it may not have been the, the accent that, that gave him away. Uh, they've arrested a lot of people, not just for flying drones. They've also arrested people they believe to have been illegals, as uh, we used to say in the trade, uh, within Norway, uh, placed by Russia under deep cover, not under a diplomatic cover uh, to uh, run agents and to recruit agents. And I suspect that one or other of those talked and put the finger on him. What, was it not the case, John, that the Kims of North Korea were clutching Brazilian passports at one point? Dominican Republic. Dominican Republic. Yes, but yes, very close. <laughs> Did they get caught because they kept turning up to work in floral shirts and doing the samba or the Dominican equivalent? Uh, the most famous example was uh, Kim Jong-un's uh, unfortunate half-brother who was caught because he appeared to be wandering around with a, an obviously fake Dominican Republic passport, uh, massively rich and with large bundles of 10,000 yen notes, which most Dominican Republic citizens don't wave around with quite such gay abandon. But what a bit of for trying to attend rock concerts and in this rather flimsy uh, disguise. That's the other brother. The other brother, that makes yes. no, he, he wants <laughs> So to hard to, to keep up with the Kims. Absolutely. He <laughs> wants to go to Disney World in Tokyo. So, See, Isabel, I was quite heartened by this story because I'm always surprised to discover that this sort of old-school undercover stuff still goes on, partly because of the difficulty of getting away with it, uh, as our friend here has discovered, and also partly because what's the point? What can you really find out anymore by going to Tromso that you can't discover with, I don't know, Google Earth and a laptop? Well, mystery to me, mate. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I guess they think it's worth it, or maybe it's just one of those um, occupations that persists as a sort of zombie occupation because we've always done it this way, and and you know the old school the old school methods are um, are indeed uh, still active. I mean, people do appear still to be leaving notes under rocks in parks for each other. So I, that's a surprise. They get very soggy very quickly. I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I, I take your word for it. I've never actually done this. John, John, do you think there is still value, though, genuinely, in planting somewhere somebody, an illegal, as you called it, in a place under an assumed identity to see what they can find out at the University of Tromso or somewhere similar? No, but that <laughs> won't stop the Russians doing it. Uh, one of the things we discovered when the Soviet Union collapsed and we had for a while access to some quite sensitive files was just how useless these people are. I mean, the the, the Soviet Union had spent huge amounts of money uh, recruiting networks of illegals across the West who did it absolutely no 
good at all. And a colleague of mine in, in SIS who had the unenviable task of having to read through some of these reports said if he ever submitted intelligence of that quality to his, his superiors, he would have been sacked on the spot. So uh, illegals, yes. Threat to Western security, probably not. I, I did just want to close by asking you each in turn if you have in the line of duty ever assumed any sort of identity or faked your way into anything. And I, I don't mean trying to get into a gig when you were 16 with your mate's photocopied birth certificate, which I may have personally have done once or twice. I, I will start the ball rolling on this by saying back in the day before absolutely everybody had Google on their phone, me and a photographer did get into paranoid, sanction-struck uh, Serbia. I think still just about trading as the Republic of Yugoslavia uh, by pretending not to be journalists, but a it was one of those stories as soon as we started telling it to the border guard, having had to drive there from Budapest because there were no flights, started realising what on earth are we thinking? This is uh, All of a sudden, when you actually say it to another person, especially when that person is wearing a uniform and has the power of arrest, you just realise... Oh, God, this is terrible. We were trying to pitch ourselves as a kind of uh, touring art installation collective, the idea being that that I wrote lyrical poems about Eastern European cityscapes while my colleague took the accompanying photographs. I've never doubted it, Andrew. Well, no, so we, we, we rolled this one out, and I swear you could see that you could see the cogs turning in this border guard's head because we pulled up at his, his little outpost, and, you know, he had a, an espresso on the go and a nice big thick book and a comfortable chair, and it was a nice hot day, and you could see him thinking... If I arrest this pair of idiots, that's 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 going to be my day. I'm going to have to fill out forms and call people, and it's going to be a whole thing. And eventually, uh, he just looked at us, sighed, uttered a phrase I will not repeat, stamped our passports, and waved us back into our car. So, can either of you cap that? Isabel, have you ever pretended to be somebody who you are not? Well, not actually consciously, but I did have a rather wonderful... A uh, travel agent in Hong Kong who who was legendary for being able to get absolutely anyone into China, even in the most difficult at times. And at, at one point, he handed me my passport with my my visa, and then he said, um, "Do you want the business cards?" And I said, "What business cards?" <laughs> and he handed over a box of business cards, which had me down as the proprietor of an apparel company um, and doing business in China, which was slightly embarrassing. Not a claim I would have made myself, but um, but so I suppose that would count. My, my husband, also a journalist, said um, it's always best to have on under occupation, when occupation mm. was in the passport, um, to have a writer rather mm. than journalist. Could it could be changed to waiter, should it, <laughs> should it be required? Uh, I mean, that, that can happen in real life uh, as well with a, with a few poor turns of luck. And, and, and John, any, any you can tell us about at least? Well, I think <laughs> my, my nearest brush with uh, the, this kind of faking was I was once detailed off uh, to explore the creation of fake documents in China. We're talking about fake documents in Brazil just now. And way back in the day, uh, there were people who used to live just the other side of Tianmen, um, in on the sleazier parts of Beijing, where if you, you know, knock three times and coughed in the right way, a door would open and you'd be let into a kind of Aladdin's cave of document forgery. So I went and tried this and sure enough, you know, the door was open. I would be master the, the cough. And 
I said I wanted to, to a, a fake, a, a, a common thing in China, a fake university pass certificate. So they said, certainly, that, that'll be, you know, 100 yuan. Uh, come back tomorrow. So I duly did. And I've, I've still got it to this day, you know, my, 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 my fake university. But as I walked out, he tapped me on the shoulder and said, for 200 yuan, I can make you a rocket scientist. <laughs> <laughs> oh, please, please tell me you coughed up the 200 yuan and you are now an officially certified rocket scientist. That would be amazing. Tragically, I didn't have the money on me, but what a thing. You are listening to The Curator on Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And for my usual global countdown this week, I had a very special guest in studio, Monaco's Lucinda Elliott, who is visiting us from Uruguay here in the office this week. Let's have a listen. Why don't you tell us now what our listeners should be braced for? Well, first of all, it's a very special one. You know, I like to play with the format a little bit, We right? have noticed. We I have like noticed. that. I think we need change sometimes. I mean, I can think of a lot of things <laughs> that should change about the global countdown, Fernando, but it's usually the music. Exactly. Well, I think you might, who knows, you might like it today. So I decided to do a Latin America special mm-hmm. where I look at the number one song in five different countries in the region. Okay. And all I can say is different. It's a different song for each country, of course. And we have a special guest here as well we because you know you know of course the global countdown is every thursday but also every thursday we have the lovely lucinda elliott giving <laughs> us an update on latin america uh and uh, you know i think it combines very well those two segments it does and and, and she was sitting here anyway and she, lives in, <laughs> and, and she lives in latin america as well no and you've chosen all my favorite nations bar ecuador on your list so uh, i'm very pleased you chose like, the ones i have a soft spot for okay so apologies Fantastic. apologies in, our, in advance to our many and devoted <laughs> uh, Ecuadorian listeners. Uh, I, I feel woefully outnumbered here, though, Fernando. I'll be back to Ecuador. That's all I can say to, to our Ecuadorian listeners. But I think we should start with Argentina, which I know Lucinda has a lot of experience there in Argentina. You even live there, right? Yes. I mean, so I've been living in Buenos Aires. And so, yeah, we kick off with Argentina. I want to see your opinion on this and yours as well, Andrew, of course. Uh, you'll get it. This is the number one song in Argentina at the moment. It's Rey and Calejero Fino with Tu Turito. El que quiera con vos, que se ajuste los botines, que yo no te escribo rima, yo te escribo lo que mi corazón pide. Si se fue mami, ¿quién iba a saber que era mi mujer? Pero mami me dejaste tan solo y te pienso cada día que enrolo y dibujé en una pared tus iniciales de mi Fernando, that is is clearly of a genre with which we have become very familiar doing these countdowns, which is that is of that genre of annoying song played at deafening volume in taxi you get out of when leaving airport when you're out of your mind with jet lag and you just want a bit of peace and quiet. I can totally imagine a cab in in Buenos Aires playing this. And even this track to Turito, I mean, I'm not going to put Lucina on the spot here as well, but Turito, is it something like my naughty boy? Yeah, it's like my bad boy or... It could be in a female context. It would be quite, quite derogatory, really. It's sort of like prostitute. Ooh, it's on that side okay. of really? things. But you, you see, Fernando, the filth that you are yeah, flinging because not even at Google, our pop fan listeners. Not even the lovely Google Translate was able to help with that, actually. No. So sometimes I'd really have to ask And the name people. of one of the artists, Callejero Fino, basically means like sort of 
an upmarket street level, you know, kind of like alley cat, like a callejero is someone from the street. We're, we're off so to a, we, we are off to you know. a terrifically unsavoury start here, <laughs> exactly. Fernando. Well, what, what is going on in Argentina? Well, I, I don't know. All I know is that it's a lovely country. And this is a very interesting though, because actually there's a big revival. A lot of this this kind of Argentine rap, they talk very much about it's in the style of old style sort of tangueros, tango music that was very popular in the 1950s that dealt with a lot of social issues and poverty and they're sort of resurrecting that through their songs so he's this these duo is part of kind of a tribe of that that's going on at the moment and big social criticism always looking on the bright side indeed and 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 that is the kind of penetrating sociological insight usually missing from these countdowns which is (laughs) is usually just fernando enthusing guilelessly why i tell him everything (laughs) is terrible but we are we are moving along to your home country now fernando Be, be very careful what you say because it's my home country indeed i will uh we're heading to brazil but that's an interesting number one because i have to say things change so much i actually haven't heard of them but they are doing so well it's basically it's a project called poesia acustica which means acoustic poetry and and they really Fernando is this literally going to be acoustic poetry no it's my, my my exit is blocked here because you're both sitting at opposite sides of the table and the gaps are quite thin do not worry there's poetry but it doesn't sound so acoustic to me <laughs> it, it's it's a project by a label called pineapple so they basically mix different artists from the brazilian music scene and they release those songs so this is the uh, poesia acoustica Number thirteen, uh, so that's the so they released twelve, uh, but this one so is... so they've kept trying and they think they've got it right exactly. But it's more of a hip hop vibe. Let's let's have a listen to this acoustic poetry thirteen. <laughs> Can we try that again at the right speed? Actually, I'm so sorry. It's interesting because, of course, I speak Portuguese, right? And I see the lyrics. Yeah, late evening, the bed is on fire. Something like that. A, a, um, a, a subtle uh, illusion. Very there. subtle. But what I like about this project, and I have to say, they really invite very popular names in the Brazilian music, like Luisa Sonza. She's doing so well in Brazil. But interesting kind of new figures like Nina, Chama, uh, you know, L7, uh, Non, which is, you know, they they're, they're beginners, you know, in the music industry. So I think this project can give, can put them on the limelight as well. You're suggesting it would be a good thing to encourage more of this. <laughs> exactly. Uh, what, what L- 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 Lucinda. I mean, it's not my favourite. I won't be on. I mean, as in, mm. I think it's very long as well. <laughs> so, I, it's like this, six this minutes the, of this. this. I mean, is, I don't know if I, you know, when you're just sort of, you know, getting ready in the morning, I don't think I'd put it on. But I agree. It's a big project with lots of big stars. Um, and yeah, you know, it's kind of a lighter tone to the... See, this, this is the advantage of the trio format, Fernando. We get a casting vote. Exactly. I, I, I feel like I'm on a bit more of an even footing now. I think Argentina is winning so far, but let's see, let's see. I mean, the next one, I think, come on, we need to respect because she's the kind of, you know, we all know her. She's definitely a soft power icon for her country. We're heading to Colombia here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is uh, Shakira's new song with Ozuna. And the song's called Monotonia. And let's have a clip. You know, the lyrics of this track, I think they're brilliant because it kind of reflects a little bit her personal life at the moment as well. Let's play Shakira Monotonia. 
Ni la mitad, pero si sí sé que ni más que tú Estaba corriendo por alguien que por mi nieta va caminando Este amor no ha muerto, pero está delirando ya De lo que había ya no hay nada, te lo digo con sinceridad Tú estás frío como en Navidad, es mejor que esto se acabe ya No me repita la movie otra vez que esa ya la vi I mean, I generally wish Shakira well with her endeavors. I mean, I love Shakira. And I think perhaps, Lucinda, you will remember this, that in the mid-90s, she was already quite big in Latin America. But she always sang in Spanish. Yeah. She was one mm. of the first artists. Mm. I mean, and, and I love the fact that she's got a new track out and she's still singing in Spanish. And I think she's kind of broadly, I mean, in all the songs we've listened to so far, everyone's speaking, singing in their native language. Whereas before, you know, the US was such a reference that people were so trying. And I think she really kind of spearheaded that and here she is you know well I, I I mean it's the total track that I'd be dancing around in my bedroom to so and a little gossip here of course we all know that she I think she split up with her from I, a partner I, I, I did not know that Fernando oh, I, I, I'm not going to lie I have not been paying a great deal of attention but look what is she saying I mean in these lyrics she says that her ex is as cold as Christmas so it's quite kind of a biting uh, song and people is, are thinking is, it's clearly is, against him in a is way is Christmas not quite warm in Colombia? Well, it is warm, but I get... Oh, that's interesting. Mm, mm. That's interesting. So she's singing yeah. from the perspective of the Northern Hemisphere. But she was living in Spain. Come on, Andrew. Let's, it's, let's it's pick not, it it's, up. It's not all that cold in Spain. I either. definitely recommend the music video to this as yes. well. There's like this... Oh, it's quite shocking with this sort of beating heart of hers mm. that's sort of shot through and then ends up on the floor and then gets put in a safety deposit box. I mean, are, for are, any are listeners, you, Are you recommending, Lucinda, that I watch a Shakira video? Possibly not before lunch, Well, Andrew, if I no. must. <laughs> let's do it. After lunch, then. <laughs> we're, we're heading to Chile now. I think Chile is an interesting one because they're also, you know, as Lucinda was saying, the revival uh, in urbano music in Argentina. I think Chile is doing, having the same kind of a movement here. And this guy, is, I mean, he's very young. He was studying to be a technician, but then he became a, a viral hit uh, during the pandemic years. So, of course, he froze his studies. And now <laughs> he's this kind of a very popular act. And he plays around with some kind of uh, genres like cumbia as well. And I really like this track. There's a lot of remixes of this one, but we're, we're, not, we're not playing the remixes. This is Pailita with Na Na Na. <laughs> Venga pa' la disco a escuchar bailita Mejor que conmigo, usted no compita, compita Estoy ganando millones con la visita Ustedes no son ganter, na, na, na Si le pide la plata, su mamá Que dispara la pistola, na what was he studying to become? A technician. Well, he's got something to fall back on. That's, <laughs> exactly. that's, that's, that's nice. It's always always good. But, you know, he's, he's still young. He's doing very well uh, in Chile. And it's interesting. So far, Argentina, Brazil, Colombia, Chile, the number one songs were from local acts. Um, and I decided to choose Uruguay because, of course, Lucinda is here. But I have some sad news for you, Lucinda. It's, it's not actually a Uruguayan artist oh, who is number no. one. I try my best, but, you know, we don't have an Uruguayan artist, the number one in Uruguay. But nevertheless, we should reflect here. You know, it's a very studious way that I do the global countdown. So I can't really cheat uh, here. And exactly. <laughs> Listeners, this is not just slung together. It is very important that we emphasize that. Exactly. Uh, so number one in Uruguay this week is Manuel Turizo with La Bachata. And Manuel is from Colombia. Let's have a listen. <laughs> Tres en una relación de 
And Andrew, I have to say, La Bachata is a type of music from the Dominican Republic, actually. Mm -hmm. So it's very the song where you dance slowly with your partner on a dance floor. So it's kind of a little bit romantic as well. Oh, do you do you romantic Uruguayans? Romantic. Right? Well, actually, all of the songs are pretty romantic. Yeah. Actually, that we've listened to, kind of like soulful. But yeah, I could tell immediately from his accent that he's not from Uruguay, even the way he says "calle." Like, um, Lucinda, just before we farewell this now thoroughly extended edition of the briefing, is there a particular Uruguayan artist or record you would like to recommend to our listeners? I think honestly what's been so interesting is this revival of tango. I think really tango, milonga, which are these small sort of sessions, I think anyone who's interested have a good Google of that and you'll find that it's, there's been this whole revival of people who are not well known um, but are doing some fantastic things with music and, and really reflecting on yeah the current situation in, in, in Latin America and performing in, in many a bar which I will be going back to. And another great topic of discussion on the Monocle Daily was Ukraine's call for a global ban on RT Russia today. Let's hear our guests views on that. The story is obviously coming up now with these current uh, comments from the broadcaster, but the ban has been on RT, I think, since the spring in uh, the U.S. and across the EU and the U.K. So it's not really a new mm. question here. Uh, you know, Kiev is obviously trying to get this to go global, and I think that's a much higher stake. But this is actually something that's gone through, um, you know, legal processes in, in Europe and has been held up as plausible. I, I do think it's a, a difficult line to draw and one that I think we should be cautious about uh, pursuing a kind of blanket and permanent ban. Um, genocidal language is one thing, and that's something that we obviously have seen under Wanda and other cases that we, you know, obviously try and, and stop that when we can. But um, but that's a little bit different than RT's uh, usual uh, game. And I think uh, I think there's something to be, uh, that we should, should consider the differences between those two things. I, I, Michael, I confess myself to being a bit bewildered, possibly more bewildered by the suspension than by the fact that somebody should make remarks of that sort on RT. RT's editor-in-chief, Margaret Rita Simonian has called uh, Mr. Krasovsky's comments disgusting. And, you know, I think that's a that's an adjective that can be fairly applied to quite a lot of what she personally has had to say over the last eight months, especially. Yes, except that RT puts it out that it is a respectable broadcaster, that it does not pander to genocidal instincts or cruelty or anything that, you know, the UN could denounce as an obvious violation of human rights. Uh, the uh, propaganda put out is very much more political in tone, mm. and it's not uh, indulging in kind of stuff that would be censored by any person with any humanitarian thoughts. Um, so... I think it's embarrassing for them, to, for somebody to to say things like that. And it's also a way of trying to uh, improve but is, 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 credibility. Is it, is it only embarrassing because somebody has said the quiet part out loud? Uh, I don't think that sort of policy is normal RT policy, though. I mean, it's... You know, it is a, a proper broadcaster, if only one that is very, very heavily one-sided and broadcasting state propaganda. But it is a, a bona fide broadcaster. And there are a lot of people who say, well, all broadcasts should be allowed to go ahead. We can't broadcast, uh, we can't censor what people say, because if we start that, where do you draw the line? Uh, I think the ban at the moment is probably justified, but I'm a bit hesitant to say that RT should be, you know, permanently uh, attacked or sanctioned or whatever. And if they think that there are lines themselves they shouldn't cross, well, that's at least one thing. There is the question, though, um, Julie, about when 
a media outlet stops being an actual meaningful news agency and does just start being uh, a, a fairly rancid propaganda arm. And you, you mentioned there the example of, of Radio Milkalin in, in Rwanda in 1994, the medium through which uh, genocide was literally organised, orchestrated and launched. And I think probably... You couldn't accuse RT of that just yet, but they are a lot closer to that line than you would want to think anybody would want to be, wouldn't? Aren't they? I mean, again, I would say I would agree with Michael. They're they're a network with a long history. I think uh, they're a place that I don't do interviews for RT, and I think a lot of other people don't as well. But they, a lot of people do, mm. um, and I would say their past coverage, again, very pro Russia, very pro that slant. But it's uh, different than being, um, you know, uh, calling for violence, giving. Directives, like the kinds of stuff that we've seen in other cases where media was really used to orchestrate a genocide. Again, the idea of being a mouthpiece for the Russian uh, for the Russian government during the war, being this outlet propaganda. I can see the temporary bans, that kind of thing, uh, pushing you know the um, different kind of outlets and uh, and platforms to try and, and limit their uh, reach. But in terms of um, just complete banning them, I, I agree. I think it's I think it's gets very tricky with. Um, how do you draw that line? And already we saw Russia respond to that back in the spring with blocking BBC and a lot of Western outlets to mm. their viewers. And I think that's just dangerous to play with the free flow of information that is not um, directly calling for violence, even if it is misinformation, propaganda, etc. I mean, the BBC uh, has still is still in Moscow. And I think this is a tacit agreement. Well, not not agreement, but the Russians understand that the moment they ban the BBC, their correspondents here in London would be out the next day. And they still find it useful to have people reporting from London, if only reporting the sort of news they want to hear, you know, chaos and mayhem and whatever. But uh, uh, both of them realise that there is a value in having uh, the uh, opposition, as it were, in your own capital, reporting what you do. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You are listening to The Curator. And for this week's Toast Stories, Guy Deloney visits a crater-like site in his neighborhood that has become a showcase for sustainable construction techniques. There's a hole in my neighborhood, as my namesake Guy Garvey once sang. My neighborhood is Bezigrad, just the other side of the railway line from the center of Slovenia's capital, Ljubljana. And the hole in question is a gigantic vacant lot on the corner of the main boulevard running into the city. It's been like this now for almost 30 years, but there's life behind the corrugated metal fences. Right now, more than there's been for the past three decades. That's because this site's been taken over by Krater, a collective of architects, designers and urbanists who offer a new vision for empty urban spaces and some fresh thinking about how we construct our cities. What we've got here is, in essence, a natural garden with trees, flowers, insects and bird life. To this, Krater have now added a ceramics workshop, a nursery for urban gardeners, a fish pond and even a sanctuary for abandoned houseplants. Coming soon, a tea house they're building using the traditional rammed earth construction technique. All the materials are found on site and everything is biodegradable. 
It's not just an oasis in an urban desert, it's inspiration for how to build better cities. My name is Gaia Mijneric Osole and I uh, run Trina Association. It's an NGO uh, for sustainable development of design. So we're about two kilometers away from the city center, Ljubljana city center, um, and we're standing in a rewilded construction site that uh, was occupied by a group of designers, ecologists, permaculturists, social scientists, and so on, like a very diverse group of young mostly young people um, who kind of share the same values that they want to transition towards like yeah I don't know more sustainable ways of living in 2022 uh, we kind of entered this um, area which hasn't been really touched by humans since 1994 which means that in all of this period of time nature will have like really um, yeah, amazing time to develop itself in its full potential. And nature is providing the raw materials for construction, among them earth, plants and fungi. There's nothing new about rammed earth construction. In fact, it's been used for thousands of years. But the Krater Collective aren't alone in suggesting that it's time for the technique to come back into the mainstream. Their way is strictly manual, with teams of people pounding the earth into moulds. But while it produces a lot of sweat, crucially, it doesn't create much in the way of carbon emissions. One thing I think which is super important is that um, you can actually access the material on your own site um, and you would already you know you wouldn't need to go to the store to buy it and in the store materials would be imported they will be coming from like faraway countries and so on so here you're already you know um, saving a lot of co2 emissions um, so they have a lower footprint You might have thought that a zero-emissions construction technique would be leapt on by governments keen to reach their net-zero targets, but regulations make it difficult to deploy rammed earth in many places, including Slovenia. One would need to go through a really long process of certification, which is also financially quite inaccessible to a lot of people who would like to do this by themselves, let's say, so like smaller communities of people or like smaller families or so on now that we're living in this really crazy times of like yeah climate change and so on and these sort of materials are again regaining attention that also legislation would need to kind of revise their administrative processes basically in order to support such practices to be practiced more. Officially, Krater will be here only until the end of this year's Ljubljana Design Biennial. But bearing in mind the history of this site, it wouldn't be surprising if the hole in my neighbourhood remains a little longer. And that, perhaps, would be no bad thing. For Monocle in Ljubljana, I'm Guy Delaunay.
and for Monaco's own design we head to Orgatac, the world's biggest trade fair devoted to office furniture. It kicked off in Cologne this week. We spoke with Giulio Ridolfo, an Italian color advisor who has worked with Danish firm Quadrat on two new textiles which will be launched at Orgatac. Oh, well, at that stage, at 60, I, I have a, a proper personality. What to say, what do I am? I am consulting fields of uh, furniture. I am, they say a master of colors, but actually, in, precisely, I do different things in this field. So I, as designer, I can work with companies to, to smooth the process of the making of an object, or I can be a colorist. Or I, I can I can work in different things on the backstage of the of furniture design. That's actually what what I'm working on these these years. And and then tell me, I mean, you, you mentioned colors there, and being a colorist, being a color advisor, is that the role that you're working in with Quadrat here? Tell us about that relationship. Well, what's happening now with Quadrat is a, it's, it's a, like to 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 close a circle of activities that we are doing since 20 years. So we have been working with Quadrat on. Um, uh, I would say from the origin of um, some textiles that were very important for them too. The thing is that uh, what happened with Quadrat especially was that I had the capability to work with masters of weaving. So I put my my knowledge and my uh, expertise about subtiling the way of how color can, can affect a material, a textile. You know in fashion I was used to work for many, many years in designing and I was able to select in between 100 of blacks for the same collection. So uh, there's a kind of expertise, like like um, training about color. So that's why Quadrat has got this way to call me the master of colors, because when I work with them, it's a quite, it's a, quite a big, big thing to, to absorb and to readapt about structures and textiles. I mean, how does, how does the way you work with colour change, uh, you know, depending on the medium you're working in? Yeah. So you're working in textiles here. Do you have to think about how we're using colour differently when, when, you're, when you're working on those projects? Every colour, every texture absorbs the colour differently. That's why working with textiles, it takes a lot of care about the textile. It's only one element, one media that creates a furniture. It creates a, a landscape, an environment. So textiles are part of the project architecture. It's like when you think about the color of a building, of a, of a new structure, of a when you pass the color of a car. Every color reacts differently to so the materiality of the story. So with textiles, it's quite a long um, expertise. I feel safe with a textile because I was formed in textile. I use them. It's my media textiles. Being a tailor advising for companies of furniture. Textiles, one of the media. Is that the first layer when you see? When you see a new furniture piece, a sofa or a chair, you see it's a beautiful color, but you touch the color. This is the, the sense of uh, working with textiles. This, this is a sensuality in color, always. I like, I like that, that idea of being able to touch the, the color. Is, yeah. is that something you're thinking of? Yeah, always. There is something that is very... It's like... There is always a different role in every uh, attitude of every material. For example, working with wools, with polyesters or whatever, with quadrat, they form a special character on what is going. They match with a 3D shape of an object. So I'm thinking always before what could be the sensation of a color when I create a color range, for example, for a new material. I mean, how do you want, you know, we're we're looking at the the new colors with with the steel cut. How do you want people to feel when they see this new range that you've worked on with Kudrat? 
I want that they, they, they look at them as a landscape, not frosty for one color. There's no color that wins to another, but it's the blend of, is the blend, like when you see a, 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 a piece of art or something like that, not, I don't, don't want to be so pretentious to compare about it, but I always look at it like a panorama. I always look to find a thing that is not too, too much yellow, too much red, but at the end there's a kind of harmony inside. That's what I wanted to transfer as a concept to a color collection. And then tell me about the, the process of actually making the steel cut. Firstly, where the name came from, but then also, you know, you mentioned this is, this is the conclusion of a project that dates back 20 years. What have you learned in that 20 years? Yeah, no, in 20 years I learned that there's a lot of things you can work with colour in different ways. You can work with yarn colours, you can work with painting and textile. You can work about, uh, let's say, to, you, you can integrate concepts. In a, you can tell a, a story. In, in, even in a textile. Uh, with the age, with training a lot in colors, I think there's m- something very special when working with the three-dimensional textiles. There's a lot to do also with um, the beauty from far from a textile. How you want, as I said before, uh, you, you see a color in a textile, you say, we want to touch it. It's not only a color, you only to have a view, like a standing, like, like, a, like a statue. Like this. It's something that has to, uh, to be to live with us. So I think it's something that we can consider nearby us, but we have to let them live also in a space, in a, in a landscape, in, a, in an environment. Just finally, I guess, for our, for our listeners, and I mentioned the name Steel Cut then, so perhaps you can tell us about that. Can you describe Steel Cut 3 for our, for our listeners and what it actually is? Mm. Steel Cut 3 is a, is a clever intuition from a, from a great designer who works suddenly working on a small construction or textile, making a bit movement, giving a three-dimensionality to a textile that could be normally warp and weft. It gave a kind of a structure as a rice seed, like a small structure, like a small pyramid, just to describe things that could, let's say, interplay like in a construction, like in a minimal construction, like in a creating an atmosphere of a sound of a textile. Uh, to me, Stilcatrio is a master of creation of a, a diagonal grain that is very tactile. So when thinking about colors on it, it was easy to interplay with three colors and create a kind of harmony. It's like painting by, by layers. You know? It's something that gives them an extra joy to an extra movement to a, a flat painted land. It's the opposite of a, a flat pantone. You're listening to The Curator. And for Foreign Desk Explainer this week, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has criticized Israel for not sending military aid to Kyiv. Andrew Muller examines Israel's reluctance to send weapons and where this comes from. A young democracy mobilizes its citizens in its defense. The numerically superior forces of authoritarian neighbors menace its borders. The very survival of a people is at stake. You might think, when considering the present travails of Ukraine, that Israelis with memories reaching back to 1967 and 1973 might perceive something broadly familiar about the scenarios. Israeli Air Force lends much-needed air support. Among those who do think exactly this is Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky. 
Not for the first time since Russia launched its full-scale assault upon his country on February 24th, Zelensky has lit into Israel over its obdurate refusal thus far to lend its considerable military capacities to Ukraine's fight. In particular, Zelensky seeks delivery of Israel's Iron Dome interceptor missiles, a defensive surface-to-air contraption which Israel has deployed with formidable success in recent years to pick off rockets fired out of Gaza by Palestinian militant groups. Zelensky believes that Iron Dome could be similarly useful against the Iranian-built Shahed-136 drones recently deployed by Russia against Ukrainian cities. Zelensky reiterated this grievance on Monday via video link to a conference organized by Israeli newspaper Haaretz. This plea did not shift Israel's government. Israel's defense minister, Benny Gantz, confirmed to his Ukrainian counterpart, Alexei Reznikov, that Israel would not be shipping any weapon systems to Ukraine. All of which prompts the question, why not? Israel is not in favor of Russia's attack on Ukraine. Israel's leaders condemned Russia's assault in February, and Israel has voted in favor of this year's United Nations General Assembly resolutions expressing similar sentiments. But there is a gulf between being against something in principle and doing anything about it in practice, and it is a gulf which Israel has been disinclined to cross. It is probably necessary at this point to dust off the enduring diplomatic wisdom of 19th century British Prime Minister Lord Palmerston, usually paraphrased to the effect that nations have no eternal allies or eternal enemies, only eternal interests. Israel's chief eternal interest is its security, about which it has more immediate and, certainly as Israel sees it, more existential concerns than most states. Right at the moment, some sort of relationship with Russia is important to Israel's security. It is generally assumed that Russia's present dominance of Syria is of assistance to Israel as it wages an air campaign against Iran-supported elements at large amid Syria's continuing chaos. Israel has carried out hundreds of airstrikes inside Syria over the last decade or so, including, in recent months, raids on the airports of Damascus and Aleppo. This would be more difficult without Russian acquiescence, perhaps even outright Russian cooperation. And slash but, some Israeli security boffins have suggested that Israel is also concerned about the prospect, in the event of Ukrainian reverses, of Israeli technology falling into the hands of Russia, and thence, perhaps, into the hands of Iran. Furthermore, while it may seem, and doubtless is, tawdry and wretched to suborn another nation's struggle for survival to one's workaday domestic political concerns, governments, just like nations, have eternal interests, one eternal interest in particular, staying in power. For the fifth time in less than four years, and polls released Tuesday predict that the right-wing bloc led by former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu would garner anywhere from 59 to 60 seats in the Knesset. 
Israelis vote in a general election next Tuesday, their fifth in a little over three years. It will be a close-run thing, as Israeli elections usually are. Any government that results will be an unwieldy coalition of riotously disparate and divergent parties. And Israel's Russian-speaking constituency is huge, perhaps 15% of the population. This block does not think or vote as a monolith, not least this time round because roughly a third of it traces its descent to Ukraine, and many of those who trace their descent to Russia may well have mixed feelings about Russia, which is why they're in Israel. But this could explain why Israel's present government has decided it is best off declining to explicitly pick a side, at least for the moment. President Zelensky's case is that this is not merely morally abject, but strategically short-sighted. A characteristic of Zelensky's virtual world tour of recent months has been his careful calibration of his speeches to local concerns and sentiments. His address on Monday made a couple of astute appeals to Israel's traditionally hard-headed assessments of its diplomatic and strategic priorities. He noted that Russia was becoming a diminished and less reliable presence in Syria, as more and more of Russia's military gets smashed up in Ukraine, and also pointed out that any increasing closeness of Russia and Iran is potentially a poor outlook for Israel, given Russia's undoubted nuclear expertise and Iran's ambiguous nuclear clear ambitions. And yet, last Friday night, Israel bombed Dimas military airport in the vicinity of Damascus. One apparent target was equipment used to manufacture Iranian drones. Israel certainly understands Ukraine's predicament, even if it does not, at present, seem much minded to help. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. And to end the show, a topic that is close to my heart, the environment and the Amazon in Brazil. For the stack this week, I spoke with Brazilian indigenous activist Chai Surui. She was also the guest editor of quarterly magazine, Where the Leaves Fall. I'm Chai Surui. I'm an indigenous activist from Paitasui people. We live in Rondônia state. I think it's one, one of the most dangerous state in Rondônia to the indigenous peoples. Now we, Bolsonaro wins all cities. I'm a coordinator of the Cunning Beds organization that worked more than 30 years with the indigenous peoples in my state. And we work with 21 different indigenous peoples. I'm a coordinator of the Young Movement of the indigenous peoples here in my state. And I'm colonist of Folha de São Paulo. And I'm advisor, consul advisor of WWF Brazil and Pacto Global da ONU. And the uh, voice for the just climate action and amplified voice for the just climate. Well, your list there, Chais, is impressive. And I think the job you do is becoming more and more important, especially, as you rightly said, we have someone like Jair Bolsonaro as president. And Because Brazil, I mean, it's always been a struggle when it comes to the environment, indigenous rights, but it was kind of improving 
in Brazil since the 90s and the noughties. But there has been a decline, right? I mean, it, it's, it's, it's really hard these days. So tell us what's at stake at this election. What would mean another victory for Bolsonaro, for example? Another victory for Bolsonaro, to me, means the end of the Amazon. So the end of the world. Because Bolsonaro, he hates us, he hates indigenous peoples, and his government project is a project to destroy forests, to put the illegal miners in our land, and he never hide that. And we had the high percentile of the fires in Brazil. It's the, the worst in 15 years. And Bolsonaro continues to say that he won't put the illegal miners in our land. He continues to say racist things about the indigenous peoples, like what he said about the Yanomami. So, and more than this, Bolsonaro is dangerous to all the people in Brazil. We saw what he did in, in the pandemic. And my people, we was the second people more affected in this dynamic. We lost a lot of people, people that we love, people that is important to us. My children, mothers dying in this pandemic. And more than this, I lost my friend that was murdered because he was a guardian of the forest. And we can feel that is more danger. And the violence is increasing. We need to have a lot of be careful here. And not only the activists like me and my mother, but everybody is in danger right now because these people is very violent. And Bolsonaro, he supports this. For example, my state, a city called Porto Mortinho, a very, very small city, they did a meeting, the invaders and the Bolsonaro followers, a meeting to discussing about the vote in this election because they are saying that desire will be, if Lula's win, will be an indigenous land. And there are indigenous peoples there and they are threatening these people these indigenous people. So all the indigenous land here, we have bad situation. In my land, we have problem with miners, we have problem with cattle, and the Uruguay, it's other lands, it's the biggest land in my state. In just little part in this land, we have more than 6,000 cattle there. And this meat is going to Europe, the, the European countries. It's not going to hear to the people with hungry. And they say agribusiness is the agribusiness put food in the table of the Brazilians. But it's not true. It's a lie. We know that the family agriculture and the traditional agriculture, what the indigenous peoples doing is they put good food to the Brazilians. It's not the, the agribusiness. And we have problem with Karaskasi, Nomi. Uh, they are putting the, the pesticides and this is will do the, the people sick. Thank you very much, Chai. And that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show is produced by David Stevens and presented by me, 
Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week to hear some of the very best of the programs here on Monaco 24. Thanks for listening. <laughs>